This meeting is being recorded. Can everyone see my screen? Can everyone hear me? Ali, you're muted. We can't hear you. Oh, sorry. Can everyone hear me now? Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning into Politics Under the Microscope for part three of our COVID special, The Policymaker's Perspective. I'm Nina, and today we'll have two members of Congress joining us. First up is Representative Seth Moulton. Congressman Moulton represents the 6th District of Massachusetts in the House of Representatives and has held this seat since 2015 after defeating incumbent challenger John Tierney. He earned his Bachelor of Science in Physics from Harvard in 2001 and joined the Marine Corps just days after graduating. After completing four tours in Iraq, he earned two graduate degrees from Harvard in public policy and business, and then brought high-speed rail to Texas while in the private sector. Representative Moulton then decided he wanted to serve his nation again, but this time as a voice for his home district in Congress. He has been an active member of the House Armed Services Committee, Vice Chair of the House Budget Committee, and is the co-chair of the Future of Defense Task Force. His legislative areas have ranged from service for veterans, to domestic health, to foreign affairs. Representative Moulton is speaking with us today about the federal response to COVID-19, the role that science and expert advice played in COVID policies, and the importance of science policy for society. Representative Moulton, thank you so much for being on our show today. It's an honor to be here. Thanks for having me and thanks for having this discussion. And thank you for being part of this discussion. Let's just jump right into it. We've lived with COVID restrictions and warnings for about a year, which sounds hard to believe. And of course, as members of Congress, you all are briefed on and made aware of risks to the American public before they can impact us. You were a very early sponsor of the CARES Act. Can you talk to us about the role that your scientific background and early input from experts played in your endorsement of the bill and the kind of federal response that you were hoping to see? Well, long before the CARES Act came along, we were simply the first office on Capitol Hill to have a very robust response to the pandemic ourselves. We were the first office to close down and go remote. And this is because I was listening personally to the scientific information. And I think I had the background to try to understand where this was going and do the math about how bad this could get and how quickly it could get bad. I remember having a conversation with our leadership, just explaining exponential growth and why before we get too far, this could be totally out of control. And we also very quickly assembled a scientific advisory panel to give us more expert advice on all these things that I instinctively, I think, started to understand. So the point is that we've been an office that listens to science all along. And that meant that we were particularly well prepared to respond quickly to the pandemic. Thank you. That's very comprehensive. I want to ask a bit more because I do know that you're very active in your district, and really that's essential for a member of Congress. States had to take a proactive approach in combating this pandemic, and it was essential for members of Congress to interface with their constituents and state officials to provide strategic testing and relief. You've served as a Marine, and you're more than familiar with using strategy to tackle a problem. What were the proposals that you and other members of Congress posited to address state infrastructure and strategies to tackle COVID before a pandemic was formally declared? Well, you know, I wrote an op-ed for WBUR, the local NPR station in March of 2020. And I talked about how we need to respond to this crisis, just thinking about it as a crisis, not even so specifically as a pandemic. 
And I said three things. First of all, we have to communicate honestly. Uh, better communication between hospitals and the local government, between local government and the federal government, between government officials and the scientific community would help us get through this much better. And of course, there was a lot of concern about honest communication, especially from the Trump administration as this crisis unfolded. The second thing I said is we need to prepare aggressively. A factory should be converted to produce necessary medical supplies. I called on the Secretary of Veterans Affairs to direct VA hospitals to provide a backstop to the rest of the healthcare system. Many people don't know that that's actually part of the mission of the VA, not just to take care of veterans, but to be a sort of crisis response for everybody else if necessary. And those are the kinds of preparations that we needed to make, and we needed to make them quickly. We didn't know how bad this was going to get, but the warning signs were there. And then third, I said, you have to act decisively. That means the federal government should fund COVID testing and treatment. I wrote a letter to the vice president back in February talking about the importance of testing. We need to designate hospitals to be just for COVID patients. The governor actually took this suggestion uh, from me and Massachusetts became the first uh, state in the country to have a whole hospital designated for COVID patients, both to treat them effectively, but also to make sure that everyone else could still go safely to the hospital for whatever other concerns uh, they may have. I talked about the likely necessity of shutting down public schools. And if you remember at first, they were just shut down for a week or two. I had a very candid conversation with local school superintendents and said, I wouldn't expect this to only last a couple of weeks. And we also talked about policy things like having more paid sick leave for workers, something we should have in America anyway, but becomes an especially acute need in a crisis like this. I also noted that we should have activated the Defense Production Act early on to start producing PPE, those gowns and masks and, and surgical gloves and other things that we need for our frontline workers to safely manage this crisis. Those are some of the ideas that I shared with the general public, but also with local, state, and ultimately federal leadership about how we could more effectively respond to this kind of crisis. Yeah, that's very helpful. And if I remember correctly, you were able to secure over half a million for fire departments in your state for PPE and over 16 million for testing. So going back to this local level approach, how did you evaluate those needs? And how did you as a member of Congress interface with your constituents? You're sent to represent your district to the greater United States. How was it you were able to work out a strategy that was effective for your constituents? To be an effective representative, you have to listen to your constituents and you have to really hear what they're telling you. I think it is critical to interface with your constituents in a very real and human way. And so when I started reaching out to fire chiefs and police chiefs to try to understand how they looked for PPE supplies, what they were anticipating, it was an easy conversation because it's a conversation that I've had with them before. What I heard when I engaged in these discussions was that they didn't have any reserves, that they were looking at serious shortages within days or weeks, let alone over the course of a months long pandemic. And so I also had a very candid, honest and tough conversation with them to say, you need to start rationing that gear right now because as much as I would like to be able to promise you that I will go to Washington and bring back hundreds of thousands of pieces of PPE next week, the reality is that that's probably not gonna happen. 
So again, communicating honestly, being able to listen, those are essential leadership skills that are especially uh, important in a crisis like this. Thank you so much for that. I'm really glad you actually mentioned an op-ed because we discussed another one that you wrote for the Salem News at length internally. And in that op-ed, you stated that we needed to lock down two P's during this crisis, PPE and proof. You cited the number of unknowns about the virus. We know that when things are unknown, people tend to panic. And when people panic, sometimes they make decisions that are not always well thought out, or they may follow someone they consider to be an expert who may or may not have great intentions, or may or may not be fully informed themselves. Can you elaborate a bit on the role that a lack of scientific input played in the federal response to this crisis, and how this response ended up shaping the actions of Americans? And this is a very sad story, because of course we saw, literally on live TV, how President Trump and his administration silenced the scientists. Dr. Fauci is probably the most famous among them, where he was standing right near Donald Trump as he talked about injecting bleach into people. I mean, absolutely absurd statements. And we've heard now, later after the fact, how frightened Dr. Fauci was by those statements from the president. But more pervasive was just the entire administration's unwillingness to be honest about the facts and to listen to scientists. And the net result is that tens of thousands of Americans are dead today who could have been alive if we listened to the facts. It did not have to be this bad. And that's just a very sad uh, reality that we face. And it's a lesson um, about the consequences of poor leadership, of dishonest leadership, of leadership that doesn't have the courage to tell the truth, even if it might make yourself look bad. As of date, over 500,000 people in the United States alone have lost their lives to COVID-19, and this statement is a quite timely reminder of the consequences of poor communication between the government and the public during times of crisis. When Representative Moulton said that our former president silenced the scientists, we don't believe he was making a partisan statement. Rather, he was communicating the reality of how our administration approached the pandemic. To get a deeper understanding of what went wrong during our country's leadership as they navigated the COVID crisis, please visit our resources page or stay tuned to the end of the episode for a debriefing. On that note, how would you say the communication has changed with this administration for you as a policymaker? Oh, it's night and day. It's immeasurably better because we have a, sci- a president who believes in science, who not only believes in facts, but talks about the importance of getting facts into the hands of the American people. We have a White House that is much more transparent and open. And perhaps most importantly, we have leaders there who are willing to admit mistakes or, or admit when they don't know. And that's just as critical because there are a lot of unknowns uh, in this pandemic. There are a lot of unknowns still about the virus. We have a whole new category of unknowns just erupting right now with all these variants that could be more dangerous than the original strains themselves. So we're still learning about this every single day. And we need elected officials to be honest about the facts, honest about what they know and what they don't know. And ultimately that enables trust, that engenders trust with all of us, both those of us who are also officials in government who want to be able to trust the administration because we're looking to them for guidance on a lot of things, but more importantly for all of us just as American people to be able to trust our leaders that they're being as honest with us as they can. 
Not unlike Reverend Holt's message, Congressman Malton reminds us here that trust and leadership matters. Communicating honestly with those you represent or serve builds trust, and this is a key to providing effective solutions and service. Thank you. That's very comprehensive, and I appreciate that. To discuss something that I really care about and I believe ties this all together, in your career, as well as this moment in our nation's history, I think there's sort of this red thread of service that constantly comes back, and service to one another, really. If I'm remembering the quote correctly, JFK said, don't pray for easier lives, pray to be stronger men. Do not pray that your tasks are equal to your powers, but that your powers are equal to your tasks. And if I also recall correctly, he was actually quoting Reverend Brooks. We see service as such a tremendous task. And I think so many times we either view it as very simple or we don't quite know where to start. If your background is anything like mine, you probably grew up with parents who are really dedicated to service to your community. I went to an all-girls school who encouraged service as part of their motto, and we had a service project we had to complete, and I'm sure you probably had a very similar education that encouraged that. I'm sure you did something in college as well before you joined the Marines. So in serving this nation, I'm sure you understand that there's so much that has to go out the window in order for you to do your job effectively and in order for you to come together with others. In my opinion, our nation's history has shown that we are stronger when we work together and when we use innovations in science and public health in service on behalf of our nation. You signed onto H.R. 6822, which would establish a national public health corps. And you're a co-sponsor of H.R. 6487, which seeks to increase telehealth services in nursing homes. Again, going back to this idea of innovation in science for the service of others. If these actions became law, what sort of expansions would you expect to see, and how could science policy and service be better employed to support those expansions? Well, I fundamentally believe that we would be a stronger, healthier, happier, more united nation if more Americans had the opportunity to serve. And of course, there are a lot of ways to serve. I mean, you can serve your own family. I'm about to have a daughter and I'm expecting my current daughter, who's two years old, to you know do a little bit of service to our family and trying to take care of her younger sister. We'll see how that goes. But what I'm really talking about is, is service to the nation, service where you have to make some personal sacrifices to do something that's part of a bigger cause to help people you may not even know. And of course, the ultimate form of service like that is the young men and women who serve in our military and literally risk their lives every single day to serve others, to serve our country and to keep all of us safe. I was so inspired uh, by those young men and women who serve in our military that I decided that I wanted to serve there myself. And what I learned from serving in the Marines is that there are amazing Americans from all over the country who really believe in America and the values that we represent and are willing to make great sacrifices for our future. And I, I realized that a lot of other Americans who didn't get to serve with me in the Marines want that kind of experience, maybe not in the military, but perhaps in the Peace Corps, or perhaps in AmeriCorps. And actually I learned that there are a lot of people who apply to national service programs and don't get in because there aren't enough spots. So we would do well as a country if we simply allowed everyone who wants to serve the opportunity to do so. And expanding national service to help meet this urgent healthcare need is a tremendous opportunity. 
It just so happens that we're in a pandemic that doesn't affect young people very much. So it's like the perfect synergy where we need more people to help. I mean, we're having trouble with vaccine administration right now. We should get young people engaged in that effort. And it's a great thing that young people are less susceptible to the virus. So they're in a great position to serve. We would be able to meet this crisis much better if we had more young people given the opportunity to serve. But I think it would also make us a stronger nation down the road. Thank you so much, Congressman Moulton. And being a former AmeriCorps Vista, I agree. Oh, that's awesome. I didn't know that. That's fantastic. Yeah, thank you. I'm going to hand this over now to my co-host, Ellie. Thank you, Nina. Hello, Representative Moulton, and thank you so much for being a guest on our podcast today. Transitioning a little bit away from COVID-19 specifically and more towards science generally, we know that you received your undergraduate degree in physics. And so could you tell us about some examples of bills where your scientific background helped shape your views and determined your support or maybe lack thereof of certain initiatives? Sure. It's, it's, it's a great question. And actually, I find that having a scientific background is incredibly useful in a job like this because we have to uh, cover a wide range of issues. I mean, we vote on all sorts of things, foreign policy, domestic policy, pandemic response, uh, tax code. Every single day we could be voting on things all over the spectrum. And a lot of issues these days do have a scientific component. Uh, A great example is dealing with the tech companies, and they have a lot of control over our lives. They have a lot of influence in our lives. Congress is trying to figure out how to regulate them. And uh, candidly, a lot of my colleagues in Congress don't even you know, have social media accounts or understand how it all works. So we put together a bill called the Alexa Act, which demands better transparency on what's happening with all your data when you have devices like Alexa listening to you constantly in your home. And that's something I think was a beneficiary of not just my own scientific background, but the scientific background of others that I brought onto the team. Uh, I also co-sponsored the Secure 5G and Beyond Act of 2020, which passed the House to develop a strategy to ensure that um, the next generation of mobile telecommunication systems is, is safe and moving forward and that we don't just have to buy this technology from overseas. More recently, I've co-chaired the Future of Defense Task Force, where we've looked at the national security challenges that we have for the next 20, 30, 40 years, and what we need to invest in back home to meet those challenges. And I can tell you that one of the prime conclusions of our report is, one, we need to invest in more basic scientific research because if we wanna develop the next generation technologies, whether that's in computing and healthcare or in national security, we've gotta have the foundation of scientific knowledge to, to base those innovations on that we've often had in the past, but we're falling behind the rest of the world in developing. Uh, The second thing we talked a lot about is just how important it is to develop our workforce. And in some ways, the most significant investment we could make in our national security is not in some new ship or aircraft or, or missile system, but in the education of our youth. Because if we are leading the world in scientific discovery, then we're going to have the best technologies to keep us safe. So there are a lot of ways in which my scientific background, I think, informs my work every single day in Congress. Absolutely. We love those examples. And going on in the same vein with the next generation of young scientists, what made you co-sponsor the Early Careers Researchers Act? And what role do you believe that early career scientists can play in improving our society via STEM and policy and politics? It's absolutely critical. I mean, we need more people all over America to 
have opportunities in science and STEM careers, we need to fund research and we need to fund research positions. We need to make sure that people in America compete with the rest of the world. When you look at the statistics right now, it's rather disillusioning. The education statistics show that we're falling behind some of our key global competitors when it comes to developing STEM talent. When you just look at you know, math test scores for young kids and for kids in high school. We still have the best graduate school education program in the world, but a lot of American kids never really have the chance to reach that point because their base public school education growing up or their high schools are not strong enough uh, to get them into a PhD program eventually. And the whole country is missing out on that talent. When some kids fall behind because they simply don't have the opportunities to succeed, then that's great talent that never gets put to use. And we all suffer from that. So we clearly have to invest more in education and I look for opportunities to do that across the board. Awesome, we love to hear that. So finally, your versatility has allowed you to transition from science to the military, to public health, to business, and ultimately to government. Ooh, that's a lot. <laughs> Seeing both the scientific and policy side, what advice would you give a rising scientist like us who has an interest in policy and politics? What resources should people like us become familiar with and people that are younger than us even? Well, to touch back on a theme that's been a cornerstone, I think, of our discussion this entire time, look for opportunities to serve. Look for opportunities to give back and recognize that your vision of service may not be exactly the same as someone else's. I mean, you may not want to serve in the military, for example, but people who serve in the military might need your help and you might learn something from them and vice versa. The more Americans recognize the opportunities to serve, but also appreciate all the different forms of service that are out there and the different sacrifices uh, people make to advance our technology, to keep us safe, to educate our kids. All of that contributes to making us a stronger, healthier, more united country. And I think everyone should be a part of that. So my basic advice is study hard, work hard, innovate, but also look for an opportunity to serve. Awesome. And thank you so much, Representative Moulton, for your time and for all of your incredible insights. On behalf of Politics Under the Microscope, we appreciate it immensely. You're welcome. Take care. We were also able to catch up with Representative Houlihan to discuss the federal response to COVID-19, the role the Congress can play in improving diversity in STEM, and how service informs policy. The second member of Congress we will be speaking with will be Congresswoman Chrissy Houlihan. Representative Houlihan represents the 6th Congressional District in southeastern Pennsylvania. She earned her Bachelor of Science in Engineering from Stanford University while simultaneously maintaining ROTC commitments. She joined the Air Force, serving three years active duty in Massachusetts as an Air and Space Defense Project Manager. Representative Houlihan then served as Air Force Reserve, working for a sportswear startup as Chief Operating Officer and later transitioned to the COO of B-Lab a nonprofit which awards the B certification to for-profit organizations. Her dedication to education encouraged her to join UPenn's lifelong learning program, retaking hard science courses. After expanding upon her knowledge and refreshing concepts, Congresswoman Houlihan enrolled with Teach for America, instructing chemistry at a public school for one year. Inspired by the students she served, she joined Springboard Collective as COO and Chief Financial Officer, a nonprofit aimed at tackling literacy in underserved areas across the nation. Motivated by the 2016 election mobilizing in response to the political climate, Representative Houlihan ran for Congress in 2018 and became the PA6 representative. 
Her legislation has covered a multitude of areas, including education and areas of reform in STEM. Today, she'll be talking to us about the federal government's response to COVID, service, and what it's like to be a woman in STEM, and how policy can be used to positively impact the next generation coming up. Representative Houlihan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you guys for having me. Yeah. Just to kind of dive in, you were an early stage sponsor of the CARES Act. You signed on in January 2020 before the nation really felt the effects of the pandemic. Because you have a strong background in engineering, what role did both your scientific background and early input from experts play in your endorsement of the bill? And what sort of federal response were you hoping to see? One of the reasons why I was motivated to run for national office rather than state office, as an example, was a real interest in science and STEM and uh, a real interest in cybersecurity and biosecurity and specifically in the biosecurity area in pandemic of all things. One of the reasons why I asked to be on the um, Foreign Affairs Committee in the Asia and Africa subcommittees was a concern that we were heading towards a possibility of a biological exposure in one form or another, either unintentional or intentional. And we wanted to have, I believed, more people at the table who had at least a, a passing interest in those issues. And there really aren't very many people in Congress, like in a couple dozen out of 400 and something, who have that kind of appetite and, and experience. So unfortunately, I joined the Congress as a freshman and almost immediately was uh, thrown into a pandemic of generations. And hopefully it will be the last one we see in a very long time. But I'm concerned that it isn't. It's just a leading indicator of something that we unfortunately will need to be better prepared for, for different mutations of this particular virus and, and possibly others as well. And so in terms of your question about the CARES Act, I feel as though we needed to move very quickly, and I'm grateful that in many ways we did bipartisanly move very, very quickly with our at least initial pandemic response in things like the CARES Act. Uh, unfortunately, right now, what we're seeing is that we still need to do more. Uh, a year and some after the first documented case, we are still, of course, dying from this disease. Businesses, small and large, are continuing to die from this disease. Families and kids are struggling with how to, you know, work, how to go to school, this conversation about women in particular. So many people who are women have had to leave jobs because of uh, the pandemic and its implications on their families. The CARES Act was a really important first step in this crisis. But what I think we didn't do well as a collective was see just how severe and how grave this pandemic was. I look back nearly a year later and think about the fact that even I thought we would be leaving our offices for a short amount of time. Didn't really think that it would be at this point almost a year since I left my office and at this point in time I'm the only one who goes to my office on a regular basis in Washington of my staff nearly at 20 people I'm the only one who goes at this point everyone else is working remotely so what I would say is that federal response is more than just representing your community and representing how your constituents think it's also about leading your community and I would have liked to have seen us collectively lead much better with a much more uh, rapid and honest assessment from the administration, from the Congress, both the House and the Senate, from our uh, state and local governments, that this was real and that we needed to be aggressive collectively in our response to it. I guess the bottom line is I wish that we had trusted in science and data from the day one rather than kind of a year in. Certainly. 
And I think that's a really good point that we could all definitely agree with having undergraduate backgrounds in science. I think you make a really good point when you talk about community. And, you know, I want to actually talk about that because between the number of town halls you do and your state of the sixth addresses, it's not a secret that you're heavily engaged in your district. If I go to your Twitter, it's very obvious that you're proud of the accomplishments that come from your district and the fact that it is the mushroom capital. You've been very engaged throughout your entire time in Congress, and I think that's something very notable. Interfacing with constituents and healthcare providers has really been essential in order to provide impactful and strategic solutions during this crisis. So can you walk us through the process that you used to determine gaps in infrastructure and resources in PA6 and how you wrote legislation to address the needs of your immediate constituents and Americans across the nation during the pandemic? Sure, of course. And you know, one of the things I love about being from the mushroom capital of the world is that mushrooms are the perfect uh, example of art meeting science. It's an absolute chemistry accomplishment to get mushrooms to grow on demand and to grow, you know, appropriately at the right time in the right way. But it's also really an art for the people who are in the fourth and fifth generations of having figured this problem out. And so that is emblematic to me of the community that I serve. Another thing that's emblematic to me of the community I serve is Longwood Garden. Gardens, which is this beautiful um, garden that we have here and people come from all over the world you know China and Japan and a variety of other places to see these gardens but it was started by a member of the DuPont family it has an enormous number of fountains that he he personally built in and designed and that's again the intersection of engineering agriculture tourism and beauty so I do really want to make sure that I talk all the time about our community and how special we are and I do want to make sure that the way that we can drive change is to start from the ground up, you know, start from within the community, have, as you mentioned, these really open and accessible and transparent conversations about what we need in our community through the form of town halls. And when you have those town halls, they don't want to hear me talk, you know, they don't want to hear me espouse my knowledge about things. They want to hear experts talk about things that matter to them. So if it is a pandemic and having medical experts or maybe even educators who are thinking about issues like mental health. Those kinds of people are the people we're trying to bring to the town halls, but we're also trying to bring out the questions of our community as well and the ideas of our community so that we can bring those up to Washington. And the way that we've designed our team is we have here in our community about nine people and in Washington about nine people, and they're roughly correlated with one another in terms of working within the district and then working on legislative initiatives in Washington on those issues. So we try to get ideas from our community and be helpful, and then we try to translate them onto the legislative uh, agenda. A good example would be I'm an entrepreneur. As you mentioned, I've helped grow a lot of businesses in our community, and I know how hard it is to be an entrepreneur, full stop. In the best of times, it's super hard to grow a business from a startup to something of any scale or consequence. And it's particularly hard right now in a pandemic to do that. One of the pieces of legislation that came forward because of feedback from our community, we had a lot of people who were applying for loans through something called the Paycheck Protection Program, small businesses who were applying for these loans. And they were applying for relatively speaking small dollar amounts, like $150,000 and below. And what they were being asked to do 
in asking for those loans to be converted into grants, which is part of the program, if you use them appropriately, is the same thing that large companies were being asked to do. Very, very large companies were being asked to do the very same things that small companies were trying to do. And if you've ever run a small company, you know that you don't have a CPA in your pocket and you know that you can't, you know, do all the things that big companies do. And so this piece of legislation that we put forward because of the feedback from our community allowed people who had accessed loans or capital less than $150,000 to go through a more streamlined process of asking for those loans to be converted to grants. And the good thing about that is that about 90% of everybody in the country access these grants at lower than $150,000. And so this was a problem that was elevated in our community, but it was happening everywhere. And so all kinds of small and mid-sized businesses were able to benefit from this piece of legislation that's now law. But also all of the lending institutions that were trying to process all those loans in their conversion to grants were getting stuck in the pipeline because there were just so many of them that were so relatively small that they weren't able to process them rapidly enough. And so the lending institutions also benefited from that. So that's an example of how you try to listen to what's happening in the community and then you try to find a legislative solution. Yeah, thank you so much. And that's really helpful because that was something that we were really curious about. How do you take this community experience and really apply it to policymaking? Which leads to the next question that I want to ask you. We know that the virus has impacted every part of our lives. I mean, even us, we're talking to you remotely, right? We're not sitting in your office asking you questions. Really two major areas that have been impacted by this are small businesses, as you stated, and education as well. There are so many kids who are now starting kindergarten and they're starting online their first full year of school. How did you use your congressional committee experience and personal experiences to address fears stemming from the impacts of the virus in these two areas specifically? That's a great question. I just was on the phone before you guys with the Delaware DCCC, the Delaware County Community College, and this afternoon I'll be on with an organization, a nonprofit that focuses on diversity and teaching to make sure basically that kids can see themselves in their own teachers. And these are things that we have to be thoughtful of. How, as a young STEM and STEAM person, I was one of very few women in any of my classes as a young person. And then even in college, my major had 99 people in it and only 10 were girls or women. And then again, uh, in my graduate school, similarly felt like I've still only ever had one woman professor in my career. There's so much work to be done at so many different levels to try to make sure that everybody gets a good and fair shake at a good education. One thing that you brought up though in the beginning that I want to make sure I focus on is my experience in teaching chemistry at the 11th grade level. It's very, very hard, if not impossible, to teach something like chemistry at 11th grade levels to kids who are reading at the third and fourth grade levels. And my kids in my school work one of the things that I have to challenge myself to do, and I would challenge you guys to do too, is also think about literacy. You know, also think about the skills that you need and just basic numeracy to be able to eventually be the people, the, the amazing um, professionals that you guys are, and how we cannot take those basic skills for granted and how important you know those pre-k through fourth grade years are to make sure that we have that pipeline of, of kids who are going to be able to have those math skills and those reading skills to be able to hopefully be in positions like yours 
So it's a really big, complicated puzzle to think through and to be thinking about those babies who are sitting in front of Zoom screens right now and how their uh, education will be forever impacted. And thinking about those young people who are in college right now. I was a, a graduate student with a baby and pregnant. How do you do that and make sure that there are more families, more women who are able to pursue careers in the sciences and in engineering and math when they also are shouldering sometimes a lot of the family responsibilities too. So when you think about all those different things that I just spit out at you, every last one of them could have a policy you know, implication or a policy solution. And it's important that we have more people in places like Congress who have that passion too. There are only about two dozen, as I mentioned, engineers in Congress or STEM professionals at a 400 and something. There are even fewer with education backgrounds. And that is a problem when so much of the Congress, like the entire Ed and Labor you know, Committee, that's what they do is think about these issues. We need more diversity of all kinds in places like where I am. Thank you so much. That was very insightful. And you know, that's actually how the four of us ended up coming together because we felt as though policy had a gap. And so one more thing that I would like to ask you before handing it over to my co-host, Naira, is about service. I believe that in order to be an effective member of Congress, you have to serve your community in some way. And having done a service term in AmeriCorps, I do deeply care about service and anyone who has gone on to read anything by you, any op-eds, it's very, very clear that you are dedicated to service. And your year in Teach for America instructing high schoolers really has informed so much of your policy and your view of service, as well as your time in the military. You've co-sponsored HR 6808, which would develop a health force to respond to public health emergencies. And you were also a co-sponsor for HR 6822 to create a national public health service program to respond to emerging needs. What value do you believe service has in alleviating a national crisis such as this one? And how can science and policy be applied to current programs or legislation to encourage more service that benefits our fellow Americans? I think services is in some ways the cure to a lot of the things that ail us as a nation. And I think that not everybody should have to or feel compelled to serve in a uniform. But I do feel as though some of the things that are so wrong and broken in the country right now are because we're not meeting each other anymore or at all. Going back to chemistry analogy, I feel as though we're molecules that are in our own little separate beakers and we never hit each other and we never react, you know, we never collide, we never create a better thing than our individual pieces. And this is, I think, a real problem. I think we can address that by being more service-minded and by providing more opportunities for people to serve. And that doesn't, as I mentioned, have to be in a uniform. It could be as a VISTA or AmeriCorps or City Year, Peace Corps, Senior Corps, you know, Teach for America, any number of these things, I think, uh, our force multipliers when you, you know, volunteer or you serve in this way, the things that you're community gets back are, you know, multiple fold what you're providing. But also I think it, it gives back to the person too. I mean, I know that had I not had the experience of teaching 11th grade chemistry, 11 miles from this window, the same year that my 10th grader was taking AP chemistry here in my community and seeing the difference between what my daughter's experience was and what my kids down in North Philadelphia's experience was, I have been forever changed by that. 
And I don't think that folks in my community can completely understand the disparity that is 10 miles down the road from where we live. And that's a really important thing that you should carry with you, you know, and that's why I think it would be helpful if more people had opportunities to serve. And we as a government speaking to policy have the ability to incentivize people to do those things. Listen, I went to school on an ROTC scholarship. I came out debt free from one of the most expensive schools at the time in the country, probably still. So that created all kinds of opportunities for me to continue on in entrepreneurism and those kinds of things. But it all created for me a constant sense of service and duty that I still feel to this day. So we have a lot of opportunities in Congress to create these programs that would um, maybe provide tuition or tuition assistance or the ability uh, like the GI Bill to put a down payment on a home or a loan. There's so many ways that we can incentivize people to be um, of service and so many people who I think would take advantage of that. The Servicemen's Readjustment Act of 1944, better known as the GI Bill, was originally enacted to assist World War II veterans. This bill established hospitals, created low-interest mortgages, and made it possible to issue stipends that cover tuition and expenses for veterans who attend college or trade schools. These benefits apply to more recent veterans as well. Thank you so much, Representative Houlihan, and I really agree. I do believe service starts locally. It starts at home, it starts at school, it starts in your community, and from there it blossoms and that's just really brilliant. Thank you so much. So now I'd like to hand it over to my co-host, Naira. Amazing, thank you, Nina, and thank you, Representative Houlihan, for all of your brilliant insights thus far. Circling back to education and education reform, we know that you've sponsored bills that vouch for higher and secondary education improvements. Can you discuss the ways your experiences as a woman in engineering informed the way you tackled issues in modern education? Sure, so I'll just talk about maybe one or two. One is not a piece of legislation at all, but the fact is that there was no group of people who were thinking about women and communities of color in STEM and STEAM, and that's just deplorable. And so we, uh, the very few people who fit into that description, started this caucus or group and organized around it. It's now bipartisan. It now has more than 50 members of Congress in it. And we have the opportunity in that way now to talk about these issues of STEM and STEAM and access to education and skills and jobs and those kinds of things. We know that women are 52% of the college educated workforce, but they're only 29% of the STEM and science and engineering workforce. And when we look at engineering, you know, aside from the life sciences, it's 16%. So we have so much work to do that something like a Women in STEM caucus can be helpful on things like, as we talked about, legislation that helps more teachers look like their students or that helps more people be able to access things like childcare when they're at getting their graduate level degree or undergraduate level degrees. So those are some of the things that a caucus can help, you know, be a, a catalyst for. Representative Houlihan is referring to the Women in STEM Caucus, which is co-chaired by her, Debbie Lesko, Haley Davins, and Jackie Wolorski. This was started in 2020. This caucus intends to tap into the women and underrepresented minorities in STEM to improve research, leading to more innovation, boost the economy, and expand our nation's scientific capabilities. Another thing we asked for kind of specific legislation that stunned me is I serve on the um, Foreign Affairs Committee. So the Foreign Affairs Committee is what it sounds like, but part of its responsibility is the State Department. 
And I was stunned to find out that we have a, a lot of problems in the State Department in hiring. One is we don't have the right pathways or on-ramps for people of color to be able to access the di diplomatic corps, and that's a big problem. Another one is, interestingly enough, many of these jobs have evolved out of times before this to require a liberal arts degree to be able to apply for them. Forget about your, your race, ethnicity. You are not eligible to apply for some of these jobs if you do not have a liberal arts degree. You know, particularly in a world where we're talking about things like cybersecurity, things like biosecurity, that is national security. How is it possible that we are not encouraging people with these kinds of technology backgrounds to be part of the diplomatic corps? So this is another kind of example of like a no-duh, you know, kind of moment that you can fix. Here, Representative Houlihan mentions the Diplomatic Corps, which is the cohort of diplomats for the United States. In the last administration, for example, five of 200 diplomats were black. Although the data isn't clear about the ethnicities of other diplomats, we know that few diplomats have been people of color that represent our nation. In the words of Linda Thomas-Greenfield and William Burns, at the very moment when American diplomacy could benefit the most from fresh perspectives and a closer connection to the American people, the diplomatic corps is becoming increasingly homogenous and detached, undercutting the promotion of American interests and values. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for that. To, to wrap up here, you are an engineer, a veteran, a congresswoman, a businesswoman, and a teacher, and we are so blown away by all those wonderful titles. And if there's anyone who's managed to master a bit of everything, it's you. So seeing both the scientific and the policy sides of this emerging new identity of what it means to be a woman in Congress, what advice would you give a rising scientist who has an, an interest in policy and what resources should they become familiar with? Oof, that's a big question. When I look backwards on my, my career, it kind of makes sense. When I looked forwards on my career, it makes zero sense. You know, I think my advice would be do what you like and do it with people who you like. And I've never been that person who's been like, I envy people who are passionate about one particular thing. You know, my daughter, my oldest, is a theater director, and since the age of three or four, that's what she was going to do. That's what she was going to be, and she's in her nearly, nearly 30 now. And so I envy that. But what I would say from my perspective is life is really long. If you're interested in something like this, that doesn't mean you have to aim yourself at this right now, at this very moment. It means that you can create, you know, a, a portfolio, a resume of a variety of different experiences because they're all going to be useful. I do think that my graduate work in technology and policy was useful, but you don't have to have that kind of specific degree. You can instead just take some classes in policy or understand the ethics of some of the technology that you're working on, because that's the intersection of what you do and how it matters in this world. I remember interviewing a young man for undergraduate at my undergraduate institution, and he was really hot and heavy over mining minerals off of asteroids. And I asked him, what are the ethics of that? Who gets to be there first? Who gets to plant their flag? He was stunned by that question. And I think it's really important that you ask yourselves those kind of questions if you're interested in bringing any sort of technology or science to, to life. So that would be my advice. Amazing. 
Thank you so, so much for your time. It was You're welcome. Such a <laughs> yeah, such a it's really nice to be with you guys. And how awesome is it that we have this technology? You guys are way too young, but when I was a little girl, I used to go to Disney every year, maybe even more than once a year. And I loved Space Mountain. And um, they used to have this moving pathway as you were walking out of the ride, and it would show you all these scenes from the future. And they were all just fantastical scenes that would never happen. And one of the scenes was a family reading their child a bedtime story, like, and they were on a planet, and, you know, this kid was in his bed at home. And me thinking as a young girl, like, that's fantasy. That's never going to happen. And, you know, now I'm not that old, but it's happening, right? I can talk to you here, and, and you guys are wherever you are, and it's a really remarkable a testament to what we can do with technology if we use it for the right things. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Congresswoman Houlihan, and we really appreciate your insight and your responses to every question we've asked you. On behalf of all of us here at Putnam, we would like to thank Representatives Houlihan and Moulton for their time and expertise on COVID-related policy, service, and science policy and its applications to society as a whole. For more information on the topics we've discussed here, head to the resources page on our website, politicsunderthemicroscope.com. As a man on the L train once said during showtime, you do not have to be Congress to pass a bill. And you don't have to be a member of Congress to actively serve your community in an impactful way. And if you take anything from this episode, we hope that you take that from it. If you have any questions or concerns, you can always drop us a line through our website as well. This is Nina signing off. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you've enjoyed this episode. Nina, you've disabled screen sharing. Hey, I just made you co-host. I'm sorry, can everyone go on mute? I think someone's stuck in the waiting room. You're breaking up again, Ellie. The recording has stopped. Politics Under the Microscope would like to thank Science Education and Policy Association for their support.